Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. Silicon Valley is not just a place, but it's also an emblem to some of a self-professed ideal. The ideal of super smart people using those super smarts to create disruption for the betterment of all. Or, as Steve Jobs once put it, engineers working, quote, to solve most of humankind's problems. He said that more than 20 years ago. There's been a lot of history since then. There's been a lot of money made, too. But also there's been the emergence of certain kinds of problems that are only possible because of technology. Elections hacked via social media. Algorithms tweaked to be addictive. Customers' data rendered into a commodity. That's not what the idealists foresaw. And yet we are connected now as never before, and innovative solutions are being developed to address challenges, issues like healthcare and employment. So where does this leave the dream? Is it dead and abandoned, or is it still very much a work in progress? Well, to us, this sounds like it has the makings of a debate, so let's have it. Yes or no to this statement, Silicon Valley has lost its soul. I'm John Donvan, and I stand between two teams of two who are experts in this topic who will argue for and against that resolution. As always, our debate will go in three rounds, and then our audience here at Techonomy in Half Moon Bay, California, will choose the winner. If all goes well, civil discourse will also win. Starting first with the team arguing for that resolution, welcome Noam Cohen. Noam, welcome to Intelligence Squared. You're a journalist, the author of the book, The Know-It-Alls, The Rise of Silicon Valley as a Political Powerhouse and Social Wrecking Ball. You wrote for the New York Times, early coverage of Wikipedia and Bitcoin. And before that, you worked at Inside.com with the late, great David Carr, who had debated with us at one time. So what happened to Inside.com? I was another casualty of the internet bubble and uh, launched a lot of great careers and David Carr being premier of them, I would say. Well, it's great to have you with us. Ladies and gentlemen, again, Noam Cohen. Thank you. And his partner, please, let's welcome Dipayan Ghosh. Dipayan, welcome to Intelligence Squared. It's great to have you. You are the Posen Fellow at the Harvard Kennedy School. You work on issues like digital privacy, artificial intelligence, and civil rights. Previously, you were at Facebook working on global privacy. And before that, you were at the Obama White House as a technology policy advisor. A lot of stuff you've done, particularly on the issue of digital privacy. So what got you interested in that in the first place? I started studying privacy back in graduate school. I think what I was so interested in is how do we send information from point A to point B in a secure and private manner? And it was that last piece that really got me stuck to it. Once again, the team arguing for the motion. And that motion, again, the Silicon Valley has lost its soul, and we have two debaters arguing against it. Please first welcome Leslie Berlin. Leslie, welcome to IQ2. You are author of Troublemakers, Silicon Valley's Coming of Age. You were a prototype columnist for the New York Times, project historian for the Silicon Valley Archives at Stanford. And in fact, Eric Schmidt called you a master historian of Silicon Valley. So tell us, what is your favorite thing in the archives? Well, we have this little bitty note. In 1976, this guy who ran an advertising agency got a call from Steve Jobs, 21-year-old Steve Jobs, hung up the phone and jotted down a note to give to his colleague. And it begins, this joker is going to call you. There are two guys operating out of a garage. And it ends... Sounds flaky. Watch it. Oh, wow. <laughs> oh, terrific story. Thanks, Leslie. And you have a partner. Please welcome Joshua McKenty. 
Joshua, welcome to the debate. You are vice president at Pivotal. You were the founder and chief architect of NASA Nebula. Earlier in your career, you led the development for Netscape 8 and for AOL's Instant Messenger Toolbar. You also co-founded a few startups, including OpenStack and Piston. Steve Wozniak was an advisor for you, and you had some interesting conversations with him about how software has evolved. Yeah, so Waz and I both started on the consumer side and then moved gradually farther into enterprise. And I think it's because we believe that technology is more and more powerful the more invisible it gets, the more the complexity is hidden from the user. Oh, I think this is going to be a fascinating conversation based on what all of you have said. So one more time to our teams arguing for and against the resolution. So on to round one, opening statements by each debater in turn. Speaking first, in support of the resolution, Silicon Valley has lost its soul. Noam Cohen, journalist and author of The Know-It-Alls. Ladies and gentlemen, Noam Cohen. Thank you. Thank you. So I wanted everyone to just take a moment and think about the first time they used the Internet 20, 25 years ago. And it was a chaotic, quirky, egalitarian, and exciting experience. I knew as much about the websites as the websites knew about me. A site like Yahoo, which was hand-curated, it was an index created by people, and you could kind of go down various rabbit holes looking at where links would go. Now, think about what it's like today, right? The Internet is so different. Obviously, websites know so much about us. We know so little about them, how we get recommendations, right? It's not through friends or people telling us things. It's algorithms kind of anticipating what they think we'll like often based on what we've liked before. So it really kind of limits our horizons, right? It's not that serendipity of spotting things. And I think about news where, you know, one of the things about these platforms like Google and Facebook that it's so flat. All news stories are treated the same. So there's no difference between a click farm and what the New York Times or Washington Post creates. It's a real terrible situation. I mean, you can easily say that the Internet has lost its soul in those 25, 30 years. Now, it's a similar story you could tell about the Silicon Valley companies, right? I mean, you could just look at Apple and say here it was started by idealistic and enterprising people, right, who wanted to bring personal computing to people. You look at Apple today, and it's sort of known for global tax avoidance, and it has an arm's-length arrangement with how its products are made in China. You could say the same story about Microsoft, right? I mean, it was someone who dropped out of Harvard to create software for this new, exciting thing called the personal computer, and he wanted it to work better for people. Look, 20 years later, and Microsoft became this behemoth that was choking off any kind of competition, and arguably, if the government hadn't gotten involved, it would have stopped companies like Google and Facebook from even getting the chance to emerge. Then we look at Google, right, which was created by these two graduate students at Stanford, wanted to make a better search engine, right? They believe search was so important to the internet experience that you had to have a trustworthy way of navigating the web. And they were worried that basically advertising was corrupting, and they wrote an incredible paper explaining why advertisement had to be kept away from search. It was too important to be corrupted that way. Cut to today, and Facebook is rife with ads. It's tracking us. It's trying to, to sell us things and feed us what they think we want. The internet lost its soul. Silicon Valley lost its soul. What does it mean to lose a soul? Like, do you misplace it? Does someone snatch it? Does it, like, expire? I think it's pretty clear what happened to the soul here. It was sold. Silicon Valley sold its soul. It was very tempting that there were people who were clamoring to get involved and invest in these companies. I think they sort of saw their mission as more important than their soul, like their soul could be used to fund their mission. So these companies all have grandiose missions. You could say Google wants to you know, organize the world's information. These are incredibly great missions. And I think they saw selling their soul, like allowing people to be tracked, keeping all their data as part of what could finance these very expensive missions. A famous comment of Larry Page and Sergey Brin was talking about how Nikola Tesla, the Serbian-American brilliant inventor, was a real inspiration, also cautionary tale for them, right? He was this brilliant inventor who had better inventions, but he was beaten out by Thomas Edison, who understood how business worked. They wanted to not make that mistake again. And I think what they didn't realize is that if Nikola Tesla had been good at business, he wouldn't be Nikola Tesla. And like, you can't aspire to be him and then not follow his path. I think they really lost the thread of what it means to be a soulful, brilliant, innovative person. And I think that Silicon Valley in the process has lost its soul. Thank you, Noam Cohen. Our next debater will be speaking against that resolution, Silicon Valley Has Lost Its Soul, Leslie Berlin, Silicon Valley historian at Stanford University and author of Troublemakers. Leslie Berlin. Hi. 
since I'm the academic and the historian, I am actually going to use hard facts to show you that Silicon Valley has not lost its soul. Once there was a time where Silicon Valley worked on hard problems, like inventing the microchip, inventing the internet. It was all for the good of humanity. And now Silicon Valley works on stupid, frivolous, time-wasting or addictive apps, or else really dangerous things that you know, undermine our privacy and our democracy. And as a historian who's been studying this place for 25 years and living here for 25 years, I can tell you that the motivations and the dreams and the endeavors in Silicon Valley today, that soul of Silicon Valley is the same as it was in 1988, in 1968. And given that consistency, there is no way that Silicon Valley has lost its soul. There are probably about 6,000 startups in Silicon Valley. And some of the people are here because they want to make money. And it's always been that way. Let me remind you that at the Homebrew Computer Club, where Apple got started, everyone in that room wanted to sell their stuff. Larry Page and Sergey Brin started Google under federal contract at Stanford University. So this idealism and the commercialism have always gone absolutely hand in hand. And right now there are people in Silicon Valley who are working to do things like obviate the need for the internal combustion engine. And this was the exact same situation we had, for example, in the 1980s. Huge IPOs, Genentech and Apple. These companies changed our lives for the better. And actually, more or less, at the exact same time that Genentech is figuring out how to build insulin using recombinant DNA techniques so that we don't have to squeeze it out of the pancreases of pigs, which is how people used to get insulin. One of the biggest IPOs the next year was Chuck E. Cheese. And that is just the way things work in Silicon Valley. So Silicon Valley has been dealing with a range of problems from the existential to the frivolous forever. And sometimes the frivolous turn existential. I mean, Facebook was not designed to become the problem that right now a lot of people feel. And there have been concerns that Silicon Valley is going to destroy the world as we know it forever. In 1975, there were congressional hearings when Congress found out about the ARPANET, which was the precursor to the internet, which, of course, they funded through the Department of Defense, but they found out about it. And Senator Tunney from California, I want to quote him, are concerned that powerful new technologies, reminiscent of those described almost 50 years ago by George Orwell, will destroy the Constitution's delicate balance between the powers of the state and the rights of individuals. And there have been organizations like Computer Professionals for Social Responsibility pushing to understand and make Silicon Valley better. And these people do not run contrary to Silicon Valley's soul. These people are an essential part of Silicon Valley's soul. Silicon Valley has the same messy mix of idealism and commercialism, opportunism and dreams that has kept it going through ups and downs for the last 60 years. Author and historian Leslie Berlin arguing against the resolution, Silicon Valley has lost its soul. More opening statements coming up from Intelligence Squared U.S. You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, With Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. We are halfway through the opening round of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. I'm John Donvan. We have four debaters, two teams of two, arguing it out over this resolution, Silicon Valley has lost its soul. You've heard the first two opening statements and now on to the third, debating for the resolution. Dipayan Ghosh, Posen Fellow at the Harvard Kennedy School. Ladies and gentlemen, Dipayan Ghosh. When, when we think about a soul, at least I think about having a moral compass, taking actions or a company exhibiting and exercising operations in a way that is quote-unquote right. There are these business leaders that started with a soul and then had to sell it. 
this industry is currently operating in a way that it doesn't have that soul. It is operating, in, in Leslie's words, with pure commercialism. Let me ask, would an industry have a soul if it treads all over common conceptions of human rights? Take Apple as an example. Last year, the Chinese government said, if you want to do business in China, then you're going to have to build a data center in China. If you want to collect information on Chinese individuals, you need to localize a data center here. What that means, of course, is that any company, any foreign company that, that localizes a data center in China has to also give access to the Chinese government, which is a surveillance state. Apple turns around and says, sure, we'll do it. And why did they do it? They did it because if they didn't do it, the Chinese government would pressure Apple's existing consumer market in China, which is tremendous. It's one of its biggest markets. And because Apple has its manufacturing base in China. And look at Google, considering whether or not Google should enter China with a censored product. What would be censored? The things that the company was considering and potentially in conversation with the Chinese government about was censoring content having to do with democracy, with human rights, with religious content, stuff that we couldn't even imagine in the United States. Let me ask also, would an industry that has a soul throw feet at the fire of the American democracy and other democracies around the world? Well, consider Twitter, uh, consider Facebook. These companies, they are concerned about raw commercialism, engaging the user. And as such, their interests are aligned with the interests of any advertiser, including any disinformation operator or hate speech propagator that's trying to push discriminatory content. That's how these companies operate. It's in their interests to draw the consumer to the platform, keep them there for as long as possible to increase their ad space and increase their engagement, collect more data about them, develop behavioral advertising profiles on them, and eventually make more money in that way. And it's because they have left aside their commitment to doing what's right, to being moral, to having a soul, that we've landed in this situation. You can't have idealism and commercialism in the same breath. That can't happen. As we all know, an objective function can have one objective. You can't prioritize two things when they contradict each other directly. Thank you, Dupayan Ghosh. The resolution again, Silicon Valley has lost its soul, and here making his opening statement against this resolution, Joshua McKenty, Vice President at Pivotal. Joshua McKenty. Thank you very much. Let's treat Silicon Valley as an ecosystem. 6,000 startups on average in any given year, 39 of the Fortune 1,000 companies, nonprofits of government agencies, academic institutions like Stanford. There have always been a complex and synergistic relationship between these organizations. Now, ecosystems are composed of carnivores and herbivores and tasty fruits, and in any batch of apples, there are a few bad apples. But if we're talking about judging the morality of an entire ecosystem, let's do it with fair measures. And I think they're all legitimate concerns. Sexism, racism, gross inequality, political influence, whether or not it's justly wielded, and most particularly, whether or not the users are being turned into products. None of these are new concerns, and none of them are concerns that only apply to Silicon Valley. In fact, these are human struggles. These are the struggles of all of society today. When you click wrap through Facebook terms of service, caveat emptor applies. We don't like it as a society. We struggle with that moral idea. Is this just? Is it fair to put the onus of responsibility onto a consumer who really doesn't understand what they agreed to? But that's not unique to Silicon Valley. If being soulful means being right and righteous and just, then none of us have souls because we all fall down and we all make mistakes. Being soulful means grappling with these questions of good and evil. Let's think about the potential hypocrisy. That's really what I think we're angry about. We're saying Silicon Valley always says they're better. They say they're different from other organizations or other parts of the world, right? Larry Ellison is famous for saying, we see things as if they're in the present, even if they're actually in the future. But Robert Browning put it, it says, your reach should exceed your grasp. That's what gives us hope. Silicon Valley's God is possibility. They have never turned away from God. Do we tolerate the God that Silicon Valley worships? What is the fair measure of the morality we expect from Silicon Valley? 
So how many of these entrepreneurs turn around and turn into the largest philanthropists the world has ever seen? The giving pledge is rounding up basically every major tech billionaire in the world to say, yeah, I'll give at least half. Then we look at the changes in even the kind of philanthropy. We see impact investing. We see Benioff's 1% pledge. They have redefined what it means to participate in corporate social responsibility. Yeah, are there challenges? Absolutely. A lot of the problems we're blaming technology for are actually the problems of media. What drives clicks? What drives ad balls? What drives attention? That problem has been around since the printing press. You know, I'm struck that if we were having this conversation five years ago or 10 years ago, we'd still be talking about the unintended consequences of technology. But we'd be talking about spam. We'd be talking about phishing attacks. And if you look at all of those challenges, Silicon Valley addressed them. Yeah, these are hard problems. Spam will take us five years. It's not going to happen overnight. So it's very easy to play armchair quarterback and say Facebook should be solving this problem faster. You know, election hacking is a real concern. This is a hard problem to fix, and we're going to get there. Thank you very much. You must vote no. Thank you, Joshua McKenzie. And that concludes round one of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate, where our resolution is Silicon Valley has lost its soul. Now we move on to round two. In round two, the debaters address one another directly and they take questions arguing for the resolution. Noam Cohen and Defiant Ghosh, their basic argument is that Silicon Valley is a place that started with idealism, that its original founders wanted to do good and to do well, but that they ended up selling their soul, that they set aside a commitment to do what is right. It's like an O'Henry story that where in order to try to do good, they ended up selling out. And when they got the money that they needed and came back to do good, they lost sight of what was good. The team arguing against the motion, Leslie Berlin and Joshua McKenty, they really argue powerfully that the flaws of Silicon Valley are in fact flaws of human behavior throughout history. And that Silicon Valley is still trying more than anywhere else to do good. And what I find really fascinating is this notion of what Silicon Valley was at its founding. Was it a pure and innocent time, relatively speaking? Noam Cohen, Leslie Berlin really challenged your notion that at the beginning, commercialism was not really part of the formulation. Is it really credible to say that nothing has changed? I mean, I felt like their argument was for stasis. I mean, the question is whether you think that something has happened where these companies have become so much more important that that's what's triggering our concern and why we're debating now. So I feel like it's very clear something is very wrong and something has changed. It might just merely be success and having more uh, people offering to buy them out, right? But I do think that it's clear we're in a different mode, and I don't think the other side is acknowledging that. Let's let Leslie respond to that. Yeah, things have changed, and it is not Silicon Valley that has changed. And to my point earlier, what we're trying to prove here is that Silicon Valley has changed, particularly that it has lost its soul. What has changed is the scope of Silicon Valley's impact on our lives, as far as we're aware of it. It used to be Silicon Valley uh, built the chips that controlled your anti-lock brakes. And now they are building the phones that hold all of your deepest secrets. That has changed. I'm not arguing that things have been static. In fact, what I'm arguing is that the soul has been dynamic and driving Silicon Valley, which has really been at the heart of uh, the success of our economy and I would argue has made an enormous difference in improving the quality of our lives. Dupaya? Well, yes, the technology has changed. Where Silicon Valley was very represented by, let's say, Intel, HP, chip manufacturers in the past, it's now much more diverse. There are consumer device manufacturers, there are Internet companies, and there are still the chip makers. Uh, and, And first of all, let's be clear. When I say that Silicon Valley, the way that we should define it is these big names of big companies, also the VC industry, also startups, and less so... Government and nonprofits in in the region. Yes, the industry has changed. What I'd suggest is that with that technological change, the technologies themselves have become more dialogical with the consumer. Social media is dialogical with the individual. A cell phone is dialogical with the consumer. Sorry, I have to ask you to define dialogical. Dialogical in the sense that the technology itself engages in a dialogue with the consumer, whereas a chip made by Intel or a chip made by HP or a laptop or a mainframe did not in that way. And with that change, what I'd suggest is that as these technologies have become more dialogical, the interaction with the consumer 
has become exacerbated. Okay, let's, let's stop there and let, and let Joshua so, take that on. I think we're conflating a change in any individual company with a change in the valley itself or the, or the ethos of the valley. So if we look at Facebook, has Facebook changed over time? Yes. Did Google? Yes. We also can't carve off the nonprofits that are the children of those companies. We can't look at Microsoft and not consider the Gates Foundation. We can't look at HP and not consider the Hewlett Foundation, the Packard Foundation. Those are logically extensions of the ethos of the people who started them. So when we say, hey, has the valley changed? We still see 6,000 new startups. We still see immigrants pouring in there, myself included, saying, hey, let's go to that place where we can raise money. We can have an idea and we can try and change the world. That hasn't changed. Every company goes through its own life cycle. That's not the soul of the valley. So yeah, let, me, let me take that thought. Noam, your opponent's pointing out ways in which companies and individuals who have been successful are doing good things or trying to do good things. But isn't there a difference? But you're, you and, and Depayan are citing things that have gone wrong. And I, I just want to challenge the, the notion that you can sin and still have a soul. It doesn't mean you lose your soul because you sin. So... You are saying that the sins add up to... I know we're getting metaphysical and beyond metaphorical here, but sure, they've they've screwed up, but the essential thing of trying to make the world a better place is still something they deeply believe in, both in terms of the companies and the products they're trying to develop, and not just Google and et cetera, and also in the way in which they're sharing their wealth. It kind of reminds me of that joke about the person who kills their parents and asks for sympathy because they're an orphan. I mean, I don't know that you necessarily need to have what would look to these companies to solve problems they've created. I, I, I hear your point that you're saying you still have a soul when you've sinned, but I think we're really trying to say, and what he was referring to dialogical. The idea, it's a different kind of relationship we're in now. To be a chip maker is one thing. When you have a, you're bearing more responsibilities. It's like when we're describing what it is to have a soul, it means to respect the other, to respect the community. If you are oblivious to it, that would be the sign that you don't have a soul. And, And we don't look to making up for it with donations after the fact. If Facebook is abusing its trust with with the people that it is supposed to be serving, with with our country, if it doesn't care that the elections are being influenced, that people are being made miserable and angry because of what they do to get a profit, that is, I mean, beyond a sin, right? Thank you. The the point that Noam and also DePayan are making, they are citing some big sins. And you started out by saying things could get better. I mean, are you playing a tactic of setting aside the examples they're using as being outliers or being exceptions to the general thrust of what's going on here? You know, Depayan said in his opening statement, essentially, how can a company that's going to cooperate with Chinese censorship in order to preserve its profits consider itself moral? When he laid out the notion that we're talking about having morality and a moral compass here, that doesn't that sound like following a moral compass, and that sounds like a big deal. So how do you respond to, to those very large things that are going on at the large companies. Yeah, I guess I have a few thoughts about this. First, I would say that to me there's a difference between having a soul and being moral. And the second thing that I would point to is, again, how these things have been happening forever, dialogical or not, and they have uh, been resulting in change. So, for example, another, another thing you could throw out would be Theranos Fair. Can you remind our listeners who uh, that is? Theranos was a, a hugely financed attempt to uh, be able to diagnose disease through teensy finger pricks. Uh, the founder was named Elizabeth Holmes, and the whole thing has blown up and is under all sorts of investigation, including for fraud and uh, misleading investors, and, uh, and people's lives were at stake. So in 1983, there was a company called Diasonics, uh, the biggest IPO of that time, $123 million. It was a company that was going to make it possible to do digital x-rays and computers uh, to do things like um, ultrasounds. And it turned out to be very much the same thing. The biggest names in the valley were sucked into it, like Arthur Rock, Robert Noyce, and the whole. it ended up with a fraud investigation and this sort of thing. And unfortunately, this is part of what Silicon Valley is. I'm not arguing, our side isn't arguing that Silicon Valley is perfect. We're not arguing that Silicon Valley is static. We are arguing that the same things that have made Silicon Valley so great have a side that also is 
difficult to deal with and problematic. I'm not, God knows, I, I have no interest in standing up here and defending some of the things we see. All I'm saying is that has been here forever. I, I'm very impressed how you already slipped the word dialogical into the conversation. PhD. I, I'm yeah. looking for my opportunity. I'm, I'm feeling very dialogical tonight. <laughs> We have a question from May Lin at People Centered Internet, and May Lin asks, to define the moral compass, do we need new codes of ethics for humanity in this age of digital transformation? Define, I'd like to rephrase that, kind of come at the other direction from what she's saying is, is your ethical system out of date, and therefore your critique loses its relevance because we're in a different world now? Or is this morality, this moral compass eternal and steady? Well, as much as I think that technology has changed, it has evolved to the extent that Silicon Valley has changed in the way it interfaces with the consumer, human beings have not changed. We still have the same moral compass. We still have the same moral nature. The way that the dictionary defines a soul, having a soul, is having a moral nature. And humans still believe that there is a right and there is a wrong. There might be different places where we all land on that spectrum, obviously. But I would say that human nature has not changed. And so given the fact that a soul is about having a moral nature, understanding what is right and what is wrong, and witnessing the fact that companies like Google, like Facebook, like Apple, like Amazon, Microsoft which are also part of this American tech industry, as well as the the venture capitalists that that fuel and fund the industry. Uh, And of course, there are always exceptions. Given the fact that they have systematically thought about commercialism, thought about maintaining their corporate interests, their shareholder interests, uh, driving profits up and up and up, even when those profits might tread all over the public interest, whether it's our democracy, whether it's the consumer having rights and power in the face of a monopolistic player in the the industry, whether it's disinformation, whether it's any of these uh, very difficult challenges that Silicon Valley has wrought now, it has, to an extent, lost that compass, and it may very well be the case that it, it never really did. Maybe, as Noam was saying, these founders when they were in their dorm rooms, when they were on their college campuses, as they were dropping out to pursue their big idea, they did have idealism. They did have a moral compass. But as they had to grow their company, convince venture capitalists, uh, prove that ROI year on year on year, they, they had to give it up. Dipayan Ghosh, former tech policy advisor for the Obama administration, arguing in favor of the resolution, Silicon Valley has lost its soul. To some, Silicon Valley represents an ideal of disruption for the greater good. But is that dream over? Or does it live on? Or was it never true at all? The debate continues in just a moment. This is Intelligence Squared U.S. I want to remind you that we are in the question and answer section of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. I'm John Donvan, your moderator. We have four debaters, two teams of two, arguing this resolution, Silicon Valley has lost its soul. Let me take a question again uh, from the audience. This is from David Kirkpatrick, and I'll I'll, I'll bring it to you, Josh. Um, If the foibles of Silicon Valley's giants are merely similar to those health companies have always had, how can it be that the failures of just these one or two companies in Silicon Valley, Valley that we've been talking about, the big ones, have such a vast effect as enabling a foreign power to distort and probably alter the results of a presidential election? This kind of social harm has never been possible in the actions of companies before. The argument being the scale is just so different that it, it does color everything else that's going on here. So I, I'll take two stabs at that. The first sure. one is globalization is not unique to Silicon Valley. Right, So the nature of a completely connected world uh, raises the stakes for everyone. Uh, the second is, I, I would say, if we look at 2008, I think we've already had an opportunity for the banking industry, completely separate from Silicon Valley, to have a devastating impact on, on nations around the world. I mean, the collapse... You, you, you are sort of doing a what about, whataboutism, as opposed to sure. actually tr- directly answering whether, in this case, the kind of thing that this, these companies are doing is so 
has been so large scale and some could argue devastating mm. in its impact that you, one cannot argue for Seoul here. Here's what's changed. And I'll, I'll connect this back to what Depayan was just saying as well in terms of the moral compass. When technology moved slowly, when in general innovation moved slowly, we expected the policymakers to regulate. We expected government to come in and say, ooh, there's a new technology here. There's cars. We should have laws about cars. There's uh, the internet. Maybe we should have laws about safety and privacy on the internet. When technology is moving so fast that the policymakers have no hope to keep up, we now expect the technology makers themselves to play that role, to play the role of the custodians of the responsibility. We heard that all through today's sessions. That's a shift in the rate of change. And that's a shift in who's responsible and who we expect to be responsible. So it's less that as, as users were saying, hey, somebody should regulate this for us and we shouldn't be vulnerable to this kind of massive abuse. But what we're saying is the regulators are too slow. We expect the, the sword makers to be responsible for the use of the sword. John, can I, can I ask a question? I, what I'm struck is that the, we have to recognize that there is an inherent compliment in this question, right? We would never have a session as Big Pharma lost its soul, right? I mean, there is something special about we're saying about Silicon Valley. And what I think is notable is that to say that you have to have a story and a narrative that there were our stories that there was idealism that was lost. I mean, to sort of just say that this because qua it's about, I don't know, because it's about uh, machine, you know, uh, technology, a certain technology, that's why it's a special soulful place. Is, it, it seems like an unfair, unfair way to, to have this debate. It's like either we're going to look hard at the story of Silicon Valley. How did it get here? How does it change? It can't just be sort of described as this place that never changes, always about innovation and doing great things. And it's not like any other technology, any other company or industry in the world, like Big Pharma or oil, would never presume to have a, a session about how their soul is so great. Are we in a place, though, where Silicon Valley proclaimed itself better than other places? That Silicon Valley announced that it was going to do the right things, that Silicon Valley was going to have a great, big, amazing soul? I mean, that is the god of, of Silicon Valley's religion, is the, the sense of possibility that they could go do things that are impossible And that's that different than big pharma? That's different than oil? They don't want to do big they, things? They have aspiration, possible. but they don't have hubris. So if, if, if hubris, <laughs> that's an asset, you say. Okay. Huh? Yeah, that's an asset. Hubris, hubris is not immoral. It's not amoral. It's, it's a characteristic of the valley that we all scoff at. We say, oh, that's so ridiculous. Look at how egotistical they are. And yet that doesn't mean they don't do good things. I think you're saying they, not we. I have um, two thoughts about this. First of all, I have to say that this notion of Silicon Valley as the place, you know, the inheritor of uh, kind of like the most moral Horatio Alger myth you could ever imagine. (laughs) Um, was itself a commercial construct. <laughs> I, I'm not making that up. Yeah, I, believe I mean, there was a deliberate attempt in the 70s and 80s. There was a recognition that this technology was way too complicated for anyone to understand it. And there was a deliberate decision that we were going to brand these companies by their founders. Um, because, uh, be- because that was the only way anyone would ever... Un- Can you imagine explaining what software... It is. You can't even, I mean, now it's hard to understand. Imagine back then. So that's the first thing that I would point out is that it's entirely possible that this story of Silicon Valley, having started in this idealistic way, was itself a, a construct from the beginning. Mm. And. Uh, can, can I stop you yeah. for a second? I just want to check in with your opponents on what. And I, I want to I let Leslie continue that thought, but. I'm wondering, do you buy that at the beginning there actually was a soul and there were these great guys and they were going to do these things, or is it more of a I construct? I do, because when she says it, it was imposed, I don't take that necessarily mean the, the people were giving idealism to, who were the, who were the creators in their dorm room, who were, who were still incredibly young. You ever think how young these people were when they are making these deals, right? I mean, you know, Sergey okay. Brin, Larry Page, okay. I, I just wanted so to I'm check. really struck that she's but saying l- that yeah, there's a uh, but I want to let Yeah, 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 I just wanted yeah to so no, I didn't say it wasn't. From the beginning, I have argued that there was a side-by-side Mm. commercialism and idealism. I've never argued differently than that. And I would just point out, before I make my other point, <laughs> that if you look at what could basically be considered the founding document of Silicon Valley, the, 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 the launch of Fairchild Semiconductor, which is the company that put the silicon in Silicon Valley, mm-hmm. and those people were trying to do so. They knew they could build transistors. They knew it was going to change the world. And the way that they started that company, and I am not making this up, is they signed a dollar bill with each other. 
eight founders and two venture capitalists signed a dollar bill, and that is the way that people have chosen to innovate in Silicon Valley. These guys had all worked in research labs, they'd all worked in government labs, and they felt that the way to make a change was through the commercial markets. That's been since the beginning. But the other point that I just wanted to make, back to the whole sort of we're noticing now, is the way that I think of this is for a long time, we looked at what came out of Silicon Valley, and it looked like magic. It was glorious. And now we're doing what everybody does when you've gotten used to magic, which is we're looking and saying, wait a second, is this a trick? And I think that's where we are right now. And these are important questions to be asking. And, but- and, and I have to break in because that concludes round two oh. of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate where our resolution is Silicon Valley has lost its soul. Now we move on to round three. Round three will be closing statements. Here to make his closing statement in support of the resolution, Silicon Valley has lost its soul, Noam Cohen, journalist and author of The Know-It-Alls. Wow, I learned a lot from this debate. I really, uh, and it's interesting. I feel like in some ways we are arguing who believes in the idolism of Silicon Valley more. I, I think even our claim that that there is a, there was a soul is is sort of at stake here because Leslie I think you know I don't think to her side's benefit has sort of explained that even though there's a whole mythology that's been created about Silicon Valley that maybe we were sort of sold to think there was something different and special about it now we're we're in favor of this this claim that it lost its soul that means we have to believe there was a soul to have lost and I, and I and we do and I don't think it's just words I think about the the people who did create these projects we care about so much and I I kind of fall back maybe I keep falling back on Google so much because I really do think it was the most transparent case of young people creating something incredible and kind of laying out a principles that I thought were really compelling about how a search engine should work and how it shouldn't have advertising. And there's a story about how did they, how did they go from, why did they end up becoming a company? Well, so they had this incredibly successful project as PhD students. It's doing really well. It's taking up almost all of Stanford's bandwidth. So they're forced to Stanford, rather than saying, we love this project, we're going to keep growing it, and we don't mind, they said, you better figure out what to do. So what did Larry Page and Sergey Brin do? They went to a professor down the hall and said, what should we do? And he said, I have an idea. And the next day, they had a meeting with a, a potential investor who heard their spiel for a very short amount of time, was like, I love it, went to his Porsche, signed a $100,000 check, and said, it's for Google Inc. They're like, there is no Google Inc. We're just grad students. He's like, don't worry, there will be. And, of course, in a month later, there was a Google Inc. And I do feel like you have to have some sympathy for them. These are 23-year-olds who are trying to do something great, and they were part of an ethos that wanted to make a difference and do something great. And there are such forces that have told them that you can't do it that way. So I do think there is a history and a philosophy and an idealism that exists here. And I do think lately we have very little reason to believe that because we see the effects. It's clear, I think, to Pian and my partner has really shown there is no soul now. And I think now for you to think about is whether we've ever argued there was a soul to begin with. Thank you very much. Hope Thank you. No, Cohen. The resolution again. Silicon Valley has lost its soul. Here to make her closing statement against the resolution, Leslie Berlin, Silicon Valley historian at Stanford University and author of Troublemakers. So before uh, the Google founders went to Andy Bechtelsheim and got that $100,000 check, they signed an invention disclosure with Stanford's Office of Technology Licensing uh, because they knew that they were going to need to be licensing and getting money out of this invention that had been sponsored by the federal government and therefore belonged in part to Stanford. Um, Remember the memo about that flaky joker Steve Jobs I just want us to think about all of the thousands of people right now who are in their garages or at their kitchen tables using technology to try to change the world. And I know it's so easy to be cynical about this and snide. And of course, some people are charlatans and some people are making mistakes that are terrible and some of them are criminal. And of course, we can do better. But the problems that we're seeing here are not because these people are in Silicon Valley and it's not because they're working in tech. It's because the nature of innovation and of being human involves this kind of exploration and dialing back. 
Right now, people come from all over the world. Right now, two-thirds of the people working in science and tech in Silicon Valley were born outside of the United States. And they've come here because they know that technology gives them a way to have an impact. And the result has been an unprecedented wave of breakthroughs that have made our lives better and our economy the envy of the world. I mean, do you really think your lives would be better without your phones or without insulin? Would our planet be better off without the fuel efficiency we've had? Are we all going to be better off if the people who are coming here from around the world decide to go somewhere else where we're not allowed to have these kinds of debates around what's happening here? Because I can tell you there are plenty of places in the world that would welcome them. To say that Silicon Valley has lost its soul is to ignore the facts of history, and it makes a mockery of all of the flaky people who have come here to make our lives better. Thank you, Leslie Berlin. And that resolution is, in fact, Silicon Valley has lost its soul. And here making his closing statement in support of the resolution, Dupayan Ghosh, Posen Fellow at the Harvard Kennedy School. Thank you. Um, I just want to focus first on uh, one point made by uh, the opposite side, which is that there is this idea of commercialism, idealism in the valley. Can you have commercialism and idealism at the same time? I'd posit that you cannot. It's simply not possible. That's really just the first rule of economics at play. A rational player in a game, a rational company operating in a space is not going to think about what's right and what's wrong. It will think about the legal landscape and optimize profits given that constraint. That's how this industry works. The best example of this is in the leading internet companies. Look at the social media companies. Consider their business model. Their business model is very simple. To create compelling platforms like Messenger and Twitter and Snapchat to an extent that many philosophers argue and psychologists argue has become borderline addictive. Second, collect as much data as they can within that framework to compose behavioral advertising profiles on individual consumers. And third, to, to develop algorithms that target ads at the individual and curate content. It's a feedback loop which has pushed disinformation and hate speech and discrimination on the individual. And they don't care. They don't do anything about it because the regulatory landscape is bare. In the United States, we don't have a privacy law. We don't have any laws that apply to this sector as a general matter. And so they have placed profits over the concept of what is morally good and morally right. Thank you. Thank you, Dipayan Ghosh. And again, that is the resolution. Silicon Valley has lost its soul. And here to make his closing statement against this resolution, Joshua McKenty, Vice President at Pivotal. So I was born in Canada, and I, uh, I never went to university. And I came to Silicon Valley, ended up working at NASA and eventually at the UN. Um, one of the big UN ideas that we talked about a lot today at Economy is the Sustainable Development Goals. And the backbone of those is what's called the triple bottom line which is the unification of idealism and commercialism. So we have to believe that that's possible. And if we only believe that in Silicon Valley, then that alone makes it a magical place. When we think about soulfulness and we want to judge someone else's soul, we look to see if we feel a soul connection with them. Right? And if we're going to say, is there a place somewhere in the world where we feel drawn to, where our soul says, please, I need to go there. That is the place where I feel at home. Those are my people. I think for a great number of people, immigrants from all over the world, that place is Silicon Valley. That hasn't stopped being true. I don't think it will ever stop being true. When we think about um, the number of things I personally have been able to be involved in earthquake modeling, uh, using Twilio to work on tuberculosis vaccines for, for Africa, uh, you know, consumer products, enterprise products, um, meetings in D.C. with uh, international aid. All of these things came from my, my relationships that I built in Silicon Valley. And when we look at the laws of unintended consequences, all of these horrible things we do wrong, those make great headlines. All of the beautiful things we do right, they largely pass unnoticed. But that doesn't mean they're not valuable. We can't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Have you all watched uh, Peter Pan? 
Right? You know the scene where, where the fairy is dying because people say, I don't believe, and, and you got to say, hey, we want to clap, clap to bring the fairies back? The fact that we get cynical and we don't want to clap, that doesn't mean the magic is gone. It means we've lost our innocence and we have to bring that back. So I urge you to vote no on this proposition. Thank you, Josh McKenzie. And that concludes round three of our debate. It is all in. I have the final results. Again, it's the difference between the vote that you registered before you heard the argument and the vote that you registered after you heard the argument that determines who is our winner. On the resolution, Silicon Valley has lost its soul before the debate. In polling the live audience, 51% of you agreed with that resolution. 33% were against it, and 16% were undecided. Again, it's going to be the difference between those results and what I'm about to say that will determine our winner. The team arguing for the motion in the second vote, their first vote was 51%. Their second vote was 35%. They lost 16 percentage points. The team against the motion in their first vote was 33%. Their second vote was 63%. They pulled up 30 percentage points. That makes them the winner. The team arguing against the resolution, Silicon Valley has lost its soul, is declared our winner. Thank you to all of our debaters. Thank you, Techonomy. Thank you. For me, John Donvan, and Intelligence Squared U.S., we'll see you next time. This Intelligence Squared U.S. debate was recorded at the Techonomy Conference in Half Moon Bay, California. Robert Rosencrantz is our chairman. Leah Mathau is chief content officer. Amy Kraft is director of operations and production. Shay O'Mara is manager of editorial operations. Aaron Dalton and Rob Christensen are the radio producers. Damon Whittemore is our audio engineer. And I'm your host, John Donvan. These debates are made possible by generous contributions from listeners like you and with support from the Rosencrantz Foundation, David A. Coulter, Robert Epstein, the Christopher W. Johnson Charitable Trust, Ilona Namath and Alan Quasha, the George L. Orstrom Jr. Foundation, Jerry Orstrom, Kelly Posner Gerstenhaber, the Mortimer D. Sackler Foundation, Jennifer and Philippe Salendi, the Paul E. Singer Foundation, Edward Stern and Stephanie Rain, and Edward and Antoine Van Achmel. From Intelligence Squared U.S. and me, John Donvan, thanks to all of you. Now we're asking for your help. When you give Intelligence Squared U.S. debates five stars on Apple Podcasts or Google Play, you help other people find us. So if you enjoy our debates, please rate and review us. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.